Turn with me to John chapter 14. We're going to read from verses 1 to 15 this afternoon. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 15. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, Show us the Father. That will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And this is God's word. This is a famous passage. It's the it's considered the upper room, dissertation, Jesus' last words that he begins to his people, to his disciples, the people who are following him as he's preparing and as he kind of unveils or reveals to him that he's going to die. For the past month, we've been looking at Jesus' claims about himself. And it's important to understand and know not just what other people say about Jesus, but what Jesus says about himself. Because you have to listen carefully. But what anybody says about themselves, because if it's false, you know that they're not credible. You can reject them altogether. But if it's true, then what Jesus is saying means life. It's the source of life for you. And what Jesus is saying here in this passage is the basic message of the gospel. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. One of the most simple and yet most remarkable claims. It's simple and it's remarkable. It's remarkable because... because It's pretty much the basis for why Christianity is the most exclusive faith in in all of world history. Jesus says, I am the only way. I am the only truth. I am the only way to life. Everyone else believes that there are many roads to heaven. Jesus says, I am the only way to heaven. That makes Christianity the most exclusive faith in the world. And yet at the same time, it's the most inclusive faith. Because there's no requirement. You just believe. It doesn't take work to believe. If you have to work hard to believe, then you don't believe. Jesus says, if you come to me as the way, as the truth, as the life, then you will know the Father. The Father is in you. What is Jesus claiming when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life? That's what we're going to look into. This three points. Jesus already laid it out for us. He is the way. That means that you have a home. He is the truth. It means that you have a center. And he is the life. It means that you have meaning. It means you have fullness. You have love. First, the way. I am the way, he says. It means that you have a home. You have a resting place. In the previous passage, Jesus predicted that 
Everyone's going to betray him. He's going to be abandoned. That Peter himself is going to deny him three times. And that he's going to, his life is going to go into the hands of the people who betrayed him. And what does that mean? If you're a disciple in this upper room listening to Jesus' discourse here, you realize if Jesus is leaving us, if he's going to die, if he's going to be betrayed, then what's going to happen to me? My life is over. I've given up my entire life to follow Jesus. And if Jesus is going to be gone, if he's going to suffer, that means I'm going to experience trouble. I'm going to suffer. And still, even though Jesus' own heart is grieved, even though he's suffering, he says in verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. He says, don't be troubled. Don't worry. Rather, he says, trust in God. Trust also in me. In other words, I'm going to suffer an end. But you don't have to suffer about, you don't have to worry about, you don't have to suffer about your ending, your ultimate end. I'm all powerful, yet I'm going to become weak. I'm going to become utterly weak. And I know that means that as Christians, that means you're going to suffer. You're going to become weak at times. You're going to experience trouble just for the fact that you're a Christian. And yet, he says, you don't have to worry. Don't be troubled about your end. What does this tell you? Jesus is aware of everything that we go through. He's aware of our suffering. He knows us. He resides in our suffering. Last week, we talked about Jesus as the shepherd. And the shepherd actually goes out and seeks the sheep that are suffering. He resides in our suffering. He knows our suffering. He knows why we're suffering. The disciples here, they're troubled because they realize, you know, if Jesus is gone, that's going to be the end of my potential. That's the end of my options. My options have come to an end. I've experienced the limitation of my potential. I've experienced the limitation of my freedom. And yet, Jesus says, do not worry. Do not let your hearts be troubled because of your commitment to me. Here's the biblical definition of suffering. It's very concise. It's very neat, even though the suffering is very messy. This is why our hearts are often troubled. We suffer when the things we rest in are tested to the very foundation. In other words, you suffer when your resting place, the things that you call home, are tested. Suffering is a life quake. It's an earthquake that tests the foundation of your homes. Jesus says, trust in God. Trust also in me. What is a home? What is a home? It's a, it's a place where you're comfortable. Your home is a place where you can go and be exactly who you are and you don't have to worry. Why? Because you know they have to accept you at home. Your home is a place where you can go and you can be totally free because you know that no matter what, you're always going to be loved. You're always going to be accepted. You'll always have access. The very root of the word acceptance is what? Access. You have access at home. No matter what. Your home is a place where you have a father. You have a place. You have your own room. Jesus here in verses 2 to 3 says what? He promises them, even though they're troubled, he says, in my father's house, in my father's house, there are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Jesus is saying, I'm the way. He's saying, you have a home. You have a place at home. You have a place in the father's home where you're ultimately rested, where your name is known, where you are accepted, where you belong. That's what he's saying. He says, verse 4, you know the place, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know the, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? It's very interesting. It's a very ironic conversation here because most of the time, 
uh, Jesus is explaining something and everybody acts like they understand. The disciples usually act like they understand. And then Jesus always has to turn around and he rebukes them. He says, you don't understand. You guys are fools. You don't understand. But in this case, he says, you know. The disciples say, we don't know. It's a disciple who says, Lord, we don't know. Jesus says, you know. What is he saying here? All of us are searching for a place. You know. In other words, all of us have a picture of what it means to be at rest. What it means. We all understand what it means to have a home. Since the Garden of Eden, man has always been in search of a home. A resting place. What happened in the garden? In the garden, we had a home. We were one with the Father. We were secure. We had, we had openness and freedom. We had life. We had love. We had meaning. Everything made sense in the garden. But when we chose to sin, when man chose to sin, they were driven out of the garden, it said in Genesis chapter 3. They were literally driven out of the garden. And God had placed a flaming sword on the east side of the garden where Adam and Eve were thrown out. And uh, a cherubim fl- with, a, with a sword that was flaming would flash back and forth. What, what, was he, what was God saying here? You will never, ever be able to enter into your resting place ever again. You will always be at work. You are always going to be homeless. You will always be searching. And from that day on, man has been searching and seeking a way back into the garden on their own without the Father because they were no longer one with the Father. And that's, that's our pursuits. Our endless pursuits for glory. Our endless pursuits for a home. Our endless pursuit for wealth. Armless pursuit for a relationship, it all ties back to what we once had with the Father, but now lost. It's a flaming arrow flashing back and forth, meaning that our best attempts at getting back into the garden will cost us our lives. We're going to die trying to get back into the garden at home, alone. That's the flaming arrow. That's the garden. From that point on, we've been trying to make a home. We've been seeking for a home. From Egypt to Canaan, the Israelites traveling all the way through. Abraham leaving Ur on his way to Canaan. The Israelites, 400 years of slavery. Once they've been rescued, looking for a home. Finally, God brings them into Canaan, the promised land. He makes them celebrate these feasts. Endless feasts, countless feasts. What do these feasts point to? He says, you were, even though you were home, even though you were in the promised land, you were never, you were not at home. This earthly resting place is not your final place. So he makes them actually for a week and a year come out of their homes and live in tents to remind them where they came from. But the fact that even now the best of what you have is not your home. That's what he says. The Bible is teaching us this. And this is what their struggles teach us. You will never be at rest here on earth. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Peter writes to a people who are suffering. And he says, dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world. You know what it means to be an alien? You know, you know what it means to be a resident alien? Most of us, or many of us, are citizens here, but um, for those of us who are resident aliens, and there are many resident aliens all in the United States, a resident alien is somebody who has a green card. It means that your citizenship is in another country, but you're here to enjoy the privileges and the rights of all the citizens here in this country. You can enjoy work here. You can enjoy the blessings, the fruits of the country. But you don't adopt everything that this country offers because your citizenship is not here. It's somewhere else. So although you can enjoy certain privileges, it's not your home. And although you can enjoy certain blessings that this country offers, it's not your home. In fact, many resident aliens long to return back to their homes with the blessing and with all that they've gained. That's what it means to be a resident alien. Things are good, but they're not like home. 
Things are enjoyable, but they're not like home. Our struggles are a constant reminder that you are not at home. Not yet. You're displaced. Peter says, you are a foreigner. You are an alien. How do you deal with the discomfort of being away from home? In our world today, we always look to uh, better jobs. We look to better homes. We look to nicer cars. We look to a nice, a better boyfriend, a better girlfriend. Sometimes we look to a better spouse. We regret having children. This is, this is the way, uh, society has fashioned this because uh, what society teaches us is this. When you're suffering, it's not your fault. You're a victim. It's your job. Your job is at fault because everyone hates their job. Your, your children are at fault. Your spouse is at fault. So what do we do? We get new spouses. Your boyfriend or your girlfriend is at fault. So what do we do? We get new boyfriends. We get new girlfriends. We get better options, better apartments, better cars. Uh, because the moment we're unhappy, what do we do? We blame everything else outside of ourselves. It must be the job because I'm, I'm unhappy there. It must be my spouse because I'm unhappy here. In 2002, um, a producer of uh, PBS documentaries, his name's uh, John DeGraff, uh, along with a staffer from the Environmental Protection Agency and, and a professor of economics from Duke University, Thomas Naylor, they wrote a book a fame, after a series of famous documentaries called Affluenza. And uh, they finally turned that into a book. It's called Affluenza, the All-Consuming Epidemic. It's a clever book, you know, the name, the word, affluenza, right? Instead, of, it's a play on the word uh, influenza, obviously, right? And uh, they describe affluenza as this. It's an illness, a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. And its impact on community life is this, chapter 8. Uh, it's all about how it impacts community. Increasing isolation, declining social capital, and a lack of a sense of place, a sense of belonging. We were once a nation of joiners. We are now a nation of loners. In other words, we're losing a sense of place in our society. Society is becoming more fragmented. We thought that if we can gain more, I could be more accepted. I would belong. But in actuality, what hap- what's happening is as we gain more, we're becoming more isolated from one another. Why? Because the moment you gain more, you look around and you see somebody who has more than you. You alienate yourself from that person. So as you rise up the ranks from having little to gaining more and more and more, all you're leaving behind is more and more isolation, more and more comparisons with one another, more and more isolation. That's what this book's about. In other words, we're losing our sense of self. We're losing our sense of place. Do you see that in our lives? And if you think about it, um, what, what this Duke University professor, Thomas Naylor, is saying is the exact same thing that Jesus is saying. Here's what they're saying. The reason why we're greedy, the reason why we're always needy, the reason why we're always angry, the reason why we're proud is because we're homeless. It's not because we need a better home. It's because we're homeless. We're still empty. That's why we can't rest. That's why we're never happy. And Jesus promises only what he can promise. Only he can promise this. He says, you have a place. You have a home. Not just a physical home, but a true home. A final home in John chapter 14. He says, heaven, it's your final destination. It's an incredible promise. He says, trust in me. In me, you have a home. You have a way. You have a place. You are accepted. You will be remembered. Remember Jesus, he's dying on the cross. 
One side, you have one criminal who says, get yourself down from here if you are who you say you are. What does the other person say? The other criminal turns to him and says, remember me. And Jesus says, today, you will be with me in paradise. You have a home. What makes a Christian a Christian? What makes a Christian a Christian? A Christian is someone who finds his home in Christ. What does that mean? It's, it's, it's someone who sees that all the things that he's built up in his life are shacks compared to the resting place that he's found in Jesus. In Jesus, he has a true father, a real father. The Muslim tradition has 400 words for the name of God. 400 words, but not one of them refers to God as Father. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father, capital F, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's verse 6. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Your earthly Father is merely a pointer then to the true Father. We always complain about our fathers. He's just a pointer. He's just a sign to the real Father. Are you still looking for a place to fit in? It's because you don't have a home. Your earthly examples, if you think about it, your family, your friends, your work environment, your relationships, your church, these things are merely a pointer to the real home, to the true home. Don't get too comfortable here. That's what this text is saying. Don't get too comfortable where you are. If you think you've arrived because you found that perfect job, it's going to fail you. That's what the Bible says, and you're going to experience what it's like to be outside the garden trying to work your way back in on your own. You're going to die getting there on your own without the Father. Jesus says, I am the way to the Father. If you're still looking to find security in your salary or in your work, you can have a large salary. But the Bible says you're never going to live a rich life until you see who you are in Christ. The poet T.S. Eliot once said that we are hollow men. We are hollow men. We are stuffed men. In other words, all we do in our lives is stuff ourselves with things that we think are going to fill us, and yet we're hollow. Jesus says, I'm the way. In me, you have a home. You have a resting place. The second thing he says, that's the longest point because it's going to set us up. The second point is that he is the truth. He says, I am the truth. And in truth, we have a center. We have freedom. What this means is that Jesus is a center of your relationship with the Father. In verse 8, Philip says, Lord, then show us the Father. Show us the Father. And that's going to be enough for us. In other words, what he's saying is, show me spiritual reality. Show me spiritual truth. You know, you say you are the way. Well, then show me. Show me spiritual truth. Reveal to us the Father. That's going to be enough. Then I'm going to believe. He wanted truth. He wanted assurance. He wanted to know that the promise that Jesus was making to them right now, that you have a home, is real. Abraham, he wanted the same thing. God promised him land, and God promised him a son. And Abraham said, how will I know? Decades have gone by. He says, how will I know? God appears before him in a flaming torch. That's how you will know. And he promises him. Right then and there, he makes a covenant before Abraham. Moses, traveling through the wilderness with with the Israelites, he only saw a glimpse of who God was. God appeared before him in a flaming torch. In a cloud, a radiant cloud, he guided and led the Israelites. That, to them, was spiritual reality. They saw it before their eyes. Philip says, show us this. Jesus responds with this. He says, Philip, 
Don't you know me? That's all he says. No flaming torch, no fire pot. Verse 9, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been amongst, among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus says, this is absolutely remarkable. Jesus is saying this, Abraham asked to see God, and God appeared. Moses asked to see God. God appeared. Jesus, Philip asks to see God. And Jesus says, don't you know me? If you know me, you know God. I am here. I am the flaming torch. I am the blazing fire pot. I am the one that God, when God made that promise with Abraham, when God made the promise with Moses, when God made the promise to the Israelites, and that, and that flaming, uh, the, the radiant cloud and the fire in the sky, I am that fire in the sky. I am the blazing torch. That's what he's saying. Absolutely remarkable. He says, don't you know me? What does this tell you? Philip was a disciple, right? Philip was a disciple of Christ. He followed Jesus for three years. That means it's actually possible to hang around with people who know Jesus and not know Jesus. It's actually possible to experience what it's like to be known by God and still not not be known by God. It's actually possible to have the, the feeling and the experience of what it's like to experience God and yet never truly know or experience God. Never truly experience God. It's, it's possible to acknowledge, you know, Jesus is Savior and Lord in my life, and yet never, never get the point of what it means to really say that He is Savior and Lord in our lives. There's definitely a difference between knowing somebody and really, really knowing somebody, right? Simply knowing somebody, you can gain that through meetings, you can gain that through training, you can gain that through social gatherings and parties, through dialogue. As a matter of fact, if you put together gossip and hearsay about a person, you pretty much know about them pretty, pretty well. But once he's established these three things, you know, mutual interest, mutual vision, mutual risk, that's commitment, right? If you have mutual interest, Mutual vision, mutual challenge, right? Mutual risk. Then you've got commitment. Now you're getting to another layer of what it really means to know somebody. And, and that's what he's saying here. You know, that, that, those things are a bridge from a casual relationship to a personal relationship. And Jesus is saying, I am the truth. If you really knew me, that's truth. That's spiritual reality. You would know my father. You would have Spiritual reality, a center. Knowing Jesus draws you into a center. The center of knowing God, knowing what is real. It answers all of your questions. Why am I here? Who am I? What is my meaning in life? It gives you a foundation, something you can rest on, a center. Now, if this claim is true, then why doesn't everybody just come to him? I mean, if what Jesus is saying is really true, why doesn't everybody just flock to him? And I'm going to tell you this. this is, here's the reason. It's not because he's impersonal. It's because he's too personal. Jesus doesn't say, you know, I'm inviting you into my party. He's saying, I want you to change your life. I want you to change everything about you. I'm gonna, if you take me in, if I come into your life, if you let me in, your, your life, you're going to have all the blessing and all the fulfillment that comes from knowing God. And you're going to get all the challenge and all the commitment and all the risk of knowing God as well. Jesus says, I'm going back to the Father. The disciples, they experienced blessing for years. Now they're troubled. He says, to know me is to know the thrill of having God in your life. 
but it's to also know the risk of having Jesus in your life as well. He doesn't want you to just follow him. He wants you to, he doesn't want you to just eat with him. He wants to be your bread of life. He doesn't want you to just taste him or drink of him. He wants to be living water in your life. He wants to be shepherd of your soul. He says he's going to be your truth. Christianity is going to challenge your concepts of grace, your concepts of morality. It's going to turn your definition of morality upside down. It's going to challenge your concepts of labor, what it means to really work. But it's also going to challenge your attitudes. It's going to challenge your personalities. It's going to challenge your mood. It's going to challenge your goals. It's going to challenge your pursuits. It's going to challenge your desires. It's going to challenge your foundations, your affections. It's going to challenge your politics. Relationships by nature, by nature, relationships are going to change you. We're meant to be changed by relationships. It's going to challenge the things that you hold very, very deeply. You never know what you value until you fall in love. You never know what you value until you come into a relationship deeply with somebody. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am your center. Fall in love with me. It's going to change your life. But it's also going to give you fulfillment. It's also going to give you joy. It's also going to give you fullness. It's also going to give you meaning. And that's the last point. He says, I am the life. I am fullness. I am the meaning of life. Jesus says in verse 7, From now on, if you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you've seen him. You know, this is absolutely remarkable. If you think about it, anyone in the Old Testament, we just talked about Abraham, he saw the fire torch. God had to come to him, not as God. He had to come to him veiled in a fire. Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. You know what God had to, God says? God says, I want you to hide in this cleft of a rock. And when I come by, you're going to see my backside. And he comes by and he sees his back. The Israelites, they don't see God. They see God behind the Holy of Holies through a priest at a tabernacle, at a temple, represented by the ark. They were all just figments of God. They were just theophonic representations of God. Jesus says, you see me. You see the Father. Remarkable. What he's saying is, you see me and you have life. You can live. That means all the other prophets, all the other prophets of old, have only seen of me. They saw me represented. You see me in fullness. In the flesh, I give you a personal touch. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. The life, the word life here in the Greek, we've been going over this for several weeks. The word life here in the Greek is Zoe. He says, I am the Zoe life. In other words, there's a difference between the things that sustain our lives, that's the Greek word bios, and that's the word that's most often used in the Bible referring to life. But Jesus says, that's not the word for life here that Jesus is talking about. He says, I am the Zoe life. He says, from now on, you do know him, and in him then, he says, I am the life. I am the Zoe. Whereas bios suggests, uh, you know, what that which you need to sustain life. He says, I give you new fullness of life. I give you purpose. I am your meaning. 
I am your love. He says, stop looking elsewhere. Stop looking everywhere else for life, for fullness, for, for glory, and coming up empty and feeling dissatisfied with your life. He says, come to me. I'm going to fill your life with newness. In the movie Dead Poets Society, John Keating, he's a poetry professor at a very prestigious all-boys school, a boarding school. He's played by Robin Williams. And he's teaching his, these, these high school boys. They don't care about poetry, but he's teaching them about poetry. And here's what he says. He says, we don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion. And medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. That's bios. He says, but poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. That's fullness. That's Zoe. To quote from Whitman, O me, O life, he says, of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, what good amid these, O me, O life? He says the answer, that you are here, that life exists, an identity, that the powerful play goes on, and that you may contribute a verse. That the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? What will your verse be, he says. What is Zoe? Contributing a verse in life. It's not enough to just have a job. We need to find meaning in our work. It's not just just, just enough to have a, have a relationship. We need to find love, to know that we're accepted, to, to know that we, we belong. The essence of our faith, then, is not a set of rules. That's not how you get fullness of life. It's not a set of word, uh, rules. It's, it's about finding meaning. It's about finding purpose. How do you get this purpose? Because Jesus says, you know, you see me, and if you see me, you have a father. That means you have life. And this life is fullness for you. That's what he says. He says, you, are, you live. There's a reason why you live. You're still alive. You haven't been consumed by the fire. You see me, and you haven't been consumed. There must be purpose. There must be meaning. There's a personal touch of God in our lives. How do you get that personal touch? Here's the answer. Jesus finds you. Jesus seeks you. Jesus searches you. He knows the depth of who you are. All those things that you want to hide from other people. You know, when I was a, when I was younger, I remember when, uh, when the pastor would come to my house, it meant spring cleaning for my house. You have to uncover all the dirt. You have to clean everything. Everything has to look perfect. The meal, it's not just your typical meal that you eat with your family. It's the, it's gotta be a big meal. It's gotta be a banquet meal. And, you know, it's a huge announcement that the pastor is coming over to our house. Everybody's gotta be perfect. The kids have to get cleaned up. We have to be, we have to act our best. And, you know, it usually comes with a threat. You know, you better, you better behave yourself. Because if you don't behave yourself, you're gonna get it afterwards. That's what happens when the pastor comes over. You know, and, and, uh, the, the reason why I share this is because here's Jesus. He knows you when you're not cleaned up. Every day you live your life. There are more often times in our lives when we're dirty than we're clean. You know, the moment that you leave this place, you probably feel at least like pretty clean because you've been assured and there's grace and there's acceptance and, and we're assured of that. But the moment we leave, from that moment on, we start to get dirty again. 
we start to get dirty. And, and we live our lives more oftentimes in the dirt than in the shower. And so, you know, Jesus knows all of that. He knows the depths of all of that. He doesn't just know what you do. He knows what's motivating it. He knows what's driving it. All your good intentions. All the things that you want to do to show how good you are. He knows all the motivations even behind that. Sometimes the motivations are genuine. Sometimes the motivations ultimately to get power over God, to say, you owe me. Now that I've done these things, you have to do your role. You have to do your part. Jesus knows all those things. The psalmist says, seek me and know me. Search me and try me and know me, Lord. That's what the psalmist says. He knows the depth of you, and yet he accepts you. He loves you. If even one of us is gone and missing, he seeks us out to draw us back in. You can't, the essence of relationship is that you have to let somebody in. You can't have a relationship. You two people can't have a relationship if one person is closed up. It's impossible. You can get to a certain point. Both people have to let each other in. If you force your way in, what is that? That's like rape. Both sides have to let themselves in, let each other in. Here's Jesus. He says, I'm letting you in. I'm giving you access. I want you to come in. He's drawing us in. And the way he does it is he sacrifices himself for us. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus says, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The Son of Man, he says, he says, I'm going there to prepare a place for you, but I have no place to lay my head. In other words, what he's saying is, you will have a home, but I'm going to be homeless. He wasn't just referring to a physical place. On the cross, Jesus finally found a place where he's going to rest his head. It's in suffering. It took the nails. It took the crown of thorns. But even beyond the nails and the crown of thorns, what does he say? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what he's saying is, I was in the land of the living. I stepped out of the land of the living into death. I raised Lazarus to life. Previous chapter, right? Previous lesson, chapter 11. And yet I've been stricken from the land of the living. God has forsaken me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cross wasn't just a physical punishment. That's what this means. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was experiencing on the cross the curse of God, the wrath of God. You know what that means? It means that flaming arrow, that flaming sword, flashing back and forth in the garden. Jesus went through and suffered the sword so that we could enter in again. Jesus was struck from the land of the living and suffered the curse of death so that we could have life to the full. On the cross, this curse fell on Christ. The sword fell on Jesus so that we could have access again. Jesus, who's one with the Father, was struck by the Father, forsaken from the living, so that we, we deserved wrath. We deserved the curse. We can have life. We can have access. You know, on the cross, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, now I have no more home. I am not just physically homeless. I am cosmically homeless. I don't even have a father. I am an orphan. I have been orphaned and disowned for you. So you would have a home so that you would have a father, so that you would not be orphaned, 
So stop living like orphans. Stop living like orphans looking for a home. Stop living like orphans looking for a father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, my worship, my center, everything that I know has been turned upside down. I am, I am the infinite, and yet I'm becoming finite. My true north is lost. My guide, my mission, where are you? That's what he's saying on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? Where are you? I've lost my map. Why? So that we can have a center. So we can be assured of truth. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I've lost meaning. I've become utterly meaningless. I've become utterly purposeless. Why? So you could have meaning. So you could have access. So you could have love. Philip says, show us the Father. Show us the Father. That's going to be enough. That's going to be enough. We're going to trust you, Jesus says. Don't you know me? I'm all you need. I am enough. Because I'm going to be forsaken by the Father so you can have access. And you don't just have access. He says so that you can be honored by the Father. You will take his place, Jesus' place. You have a place. You have a center. You have life. You have meaning. Other homes, other truths, other promises of life, they're going to lead to a static life, a stagnant life. It's, they're going to be exciting for a while, but what happens is the excitement gets replaced with suffering. That's what happens. Every job that you'll ever have, initially there'll be excitement, and there'll be pockets of excitement, and then there'll be suffering. Every relationship you get into, there's always that excitement in the beginning, but there'll be suffering. It's part of the commitment. It's part of, there's thrill, and then there's responsibility. If you don't maintain both, then the relationship fails. Jesus, when he comes into your life, he's saying it will be dynamic. Because even when you fail, even when you fail, and you're going to fail, we're going to fail. He says, I will hold on to you so tight, and I will never let you go. Let that be your center. Let that be your truth. Let that be your, your home. Let that be your assurance. Let that be your resting place. Let that secure you. Let that change you. Will you take his words? Will you take his words? Let it argue with you. Let it change you. Let it mold you. Let it comfort you. Let Jesus be your life. Let him love you. Let him embrace you. Let him give you meaning. Let him give you purpose. Let him fulfill you.